The scripture this morning is from the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt, and I will strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. This is God's word. Well, thanks be to God. Last week, Kevin mentioned in pointing our eyes to what matters, this little number that hangs out right up here. Uh, that point was to not focus on that, but focus on the Lord, focus on Jesus. I wanted to take this moment also to just say there's, there's been a huge uptick in views after the live stream also, a couple thousand in fact, and I want to encourage you, wherever you are, whoever is watching, we welcome you. We want you to know that you are loved deeply by God. But I want to also encourage you today, whoever does not have a church home, a local community, to seek one out. Obviously, this is a time that makes it a little bit harder, but there will come a day when people will gather again in person. In this digital format, while it will continue, it's not meant to be the primary source of discipleship. It's not meant to be the primary source of community. It can't be the primary source of community. This, honestly, and any other online tools are supplementary to our growth. Primary growth happens in community. It happens in commitment to a local group of followers. So again, I'd encourage you, if you're not a member of a local church, seek one out. Join the community wherever you are. You are not alone. There are fellow followers to walk with you. And while we and many other churches will continue to provide digitally, please remember that it can't. It is not meant to supplant committed, accountable community. 
Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we step into our message this morning. Heavenly Father, as we now take time to look at your word, to examine our lives, our hearts, our minds, may you deal graciously with us. May your spirit work in us, reminding us, calling us to the more of life, to more of you. I pray that you would use these words to call people to you. That today would be the awakening for someone somewhere. That today we might fix our eyes on that which is beautiful and worthy of our focus. Father, may you show us truth. May you expose our rebellion. May you correct our mistakes and failures. And may you train us to live your way, God's way, to the fullness of life in you. In the saving name of Jesus, our Christ, I pray. Amen. Many of you have probably been to weddings before. And you know they decorate their tables with beautiful centerpieces, right? Some are simple, some are ornate, some are obnoxiously too big, right? So, some, some are just random and weird. It, it's, it's almost like some, sometimes they, you know, the really big ones that sit in the center of the table, they're designed intentionally so that you can walk up to the table and go, okay, who do I not want to talk to? at this wedding. I'm going to sit across from that person. This is true of restaurants too. You, go to, you ever go to a restaurant where the centerpiece is, is right at eye level and it's just screaming, we have a chocolate volcano. We've got dessert. We've got drinks. Of course, the goal of a centerpiece is to not be the centerpiece. That was, that was terrible. That was an attempt at play on words. No laughter in the room at all with that one, that, even though there are 10 people in this room. In fact, the, the design of a centerpiece is to really set the mood, but not be the focal point of the table. Really, it's the food, the main course. And as we continue this series on what is your focal point, what is your focus when, when things happen in life, Forms of loss, we've already prayed about, from job loss to loved ones being lost, to isolation, to fear, to anxiety. When it hits the fan, where will you look for security? Where will you look for peace, for strength, and for life? Our goal in this series is to take various passages in Scripture to show how consistently throughout the Bible, God calls us to fix our eyes on Him. And even more, while we fix our eyes on the hope to come, we begin to see that he, God, isn't just at the end of the tunnel. He's in it with us. And today in the passage, we see that he gives himself for us, for our sake, for our redemption. He becomes the centerpiece. And that's what we need. Now, in the larger story of God's people, our passage is during a time of darkness. For hundreds of years, they're, they're in slavery, they're in bondage to the great nation of Egypt, where Pharaoh is viewed as a god. 
And the God of Israel begins to move. He begins to call Moses to stand up for his people. And God sends plagues upon the lands of Egypt to illustrate his power. And this last plague to come is to show who has control over life. The creator of the universe has the right to give and to take. But this is only part of the picture. Yes, this is a story of justice of judgment on wrongdoing. But at the center of the story is this little innocent lamb where grace is found, where salvation is found, where redemption is found. The focal point here becomes an innocent lamb. The life of one for the sake of many. Now briefly, I wonder if our modern sensibility makes some balk at this idea of God bringing judgment taking life, of God taking the life of a lamb, an innocent animal. To some, maybe a judging God is offensive. And yet, in reality, we we seek justice when we witness wrong. We are able to spot injustice. And, and, And we want correction. We want wrongs to be made right. From the drug trade to trafficking, we're able to spot injustice and the need for judgment. So we just have to imagine this on a cosmic scale. Cosmic level treason, cosmic level rebellion, abuse. As Chris just said in the children's moment, there's a seriousness to our sin. There's a seriousness to our rebellion against the creator. You know, in our comfortability, it might be foreign to us for the need of justice against the wrong and and the judgment in this passage but it's not foreign for many parts of the world who every day live in it. Now that was an aside. What we see in this moment here is God continuing the foreshadowing of one to come who will provide this Passover once and for all. And already he gives the example of something innocent coming in place of the guilty. I think more importantly that this this salvation, this redemption is provided for you, not by you. You don't bring anything to the table. It's provided for you. See, God is drawing attention to the fact that you cannot find life in yourself. The, the, the centerpiece, the central focal point, the place of freedom and justice and redemption is found outside of you. The place of redemption is, is found in something else, in someone else. This is the story arc from beginning to end. From Genesis to Revelation, God is pointing out a deep need of probably a blind, something we blindly ignore. In fact, in the garden, in the story of the fall, it's centered around Adam and Eve believing that they could, in their own way, in their own strength, with their own resourcefulness, become the source of their own life. We still fall prey to this lie today. I made something out of myself. I pulled myself up and out. I worked hard to get where I am. And we subtly fix our eyes on our own ingenuity, our own talents, our own strength subtly making us the centerpiece of our lives. Again, in this moment in Exodus, which 
foreshadows the coming Jesus of Nazareth, God shatters the stereotypes of what strength is, of what power is, of what redemption is. In a nation of Egypt, where power is shown through might and force and sword and chariot, God says the only thing that's going to save you is the weak, the innocent, the small. In fact, John the Baptist draws attention to this. This is what, again, Chris referenced, John chapter 1, verse 29, a direct connection where he sees Jesus walking towards him and he declares, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He points back to this moment. He points back to this moment and said, he's the innocent Lamb. Think about it this way. God is going toe-to-toe with Pharaoh in the beginning of Exodus. And, and God provides a way of salvation, a way of freedom for people, but it isn't through strength, it isn't through power, it isn't through political savvy, but through a weak, small, not-so-bright animal. He takes the lesser, and he sets it at the center of the table to shatter our notions of self-sufficiency, to show that as creator, he not only exudes phenomenal cosmic power, he provides the way, the path, the avenue for redemption for our own failings. We're the ones that create the mess. We're the ones that cause the destruction around us. And he says, I'll take the punishment. I'll do it for you. See, I think a large part here is that no matter how resourceful or self-sufficient we are or that we think we are, we are not the source of our own life. You're not the source of your own life. You're not. You're not the center. Something else is. Better yet, someone else is. I mean, have you ever connected the dots that every, every time you sit down at a table to eat, you are a reminder, you, you are acting out a reminder of this deep truth? I mean, God sets this feast in place for a whole host of reasons. But one is the reminder that you have to eat to have life. Something outside of you brings you life. Left to yourself, you will waste away through malnourishment. No amount of willpower will give your body life. Just try it. It's only through the acceptance of something outside of you that will bring you nourishment. See, every meal in essence, becomes an opportunity to serve as a reminder that we are not the source of our own life. Every meal becomes an opportunity to be reminded of the self-sacrifice of a God who seeks justice, yes, but then gives himself to take our place, to take our punishment. Every meal now can serve as a reminder, pointing us to the centerpiece of history, 
the centerpiece of freedom, the centerpiece of salvation, of life. And it's not you. And even verbalizing that, even admitting that, should be freeing. Should take weight off of shoulders. When we come to Jesus, when we cast our burdens on him, we're admitting you are my help. You are my hope. And you are the centerpiece. I would encourage you today, starting today, let these daily practices Simply sitting at a table. Be moments where we fix our eyes on Jesus. Be moments where we look to him. To be reminded of the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. Today, may we fix our eyes on Jesus. The centerpiece of history. Father, may we begin to see that we are not the source of our own lives. We are not our own sources physically, and we are not our own sources spiritually. In the end, Lord, navel-gazing, seeking answers within will leave us just as malnourished as seeking food within ourselves. Pray this would change our postures, our attitudes, our, our actions to those around us. More importantly, I pray this would change our hearts. That we might see that true life, full life, can't come from myself, but must come from the giver of life. May that acceptance of dependence not scare us, but free us. Father, it's often we can see ways that you give and you take away. I pray we would rather than, rather than in anger or frustration, see these ways as lessons of where we place our trust. Lord, I know in my own life they are, they are ways that you call me back to you. Ways that you reveal our attempts at self-sufficiency. And how they often leave us feeling empty, feeling hungry, longing for something more, something filling. Only you, Christ, can truly fill us. Father, I pray for any who watch this, whether the first time or the millionth time, create the heart tug toward you. That longing for more. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.